If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah 6. We continue to chip away at Nehemiah. We're going to take a break for Nehemiah after next week. So we got this week and next week, and then we're going into an Advent time. But Nehemiah 6, 15, and we're going to go through 7, 4. Nehemiah 6, 15 through 7, 4. We've been working on getting this wall built. And finally, verse 15 of Nehemiah 6, given to us these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoiahan, Jehoiahan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things I wanted you to see in this study of Nehemiah is the narrative arc of scripture, right? So the Bible is not this a series of disjointed stories that teach us a nice moral lesson. There, are, there is this overarching story, this overarching arc throughout, and Nehemiah has an important place in that. We've been describing it as the post-exilic period. But God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament are incredibly insightful. And it's very helpful for us as the people of God in Christ to learn from, to, uh, to, to try to avoid some of the mistakes that they made and to try to follow some of the faithfulness that we see. The, the kind of, I would say, the, the high point of God's dealings with the people of Israel was the reign of King David. They'd gone into the promised land. They'd conquered their enemies. They'd established themselves in Jerusalem as their capital. They'd established themselves in the promised land of God. And David was a good king, not a perfect man, but a man after God's own heart. But just one generation later, things started to break down. Solomon took over as king. And Solomon was very wise and very powerful and had a lot going on for him. But he did something that was foolish. He took on many wives and those wives were from the enemy nations, from other nations. So I'm having a conversation 
even in the break about this. And it was customary at this time for, for kings to do this. You would, you would, in a sense, take on the family of another nation so that you could make peace with those nations. So you get along with those nations. So all would be well. It was a very wide custom of the day and of the time. But God had already said, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't, don't take on these other people. Don't, don't marry outside of your people. But that was disregarded. And, and in the house of the Lord, all of a sudden, the worship of other gods began to take place. And the hearts of the people started to turn away from the Lord. And really the story from Solomon to exile is just this story about how these people of Israel, these people of God that God had so blessed, just really went from bad to worse and their hearts turned away from the Lord. Eventually, right after Solomon, the nation was split into two nations, this unthinkable thing that the people of God, that he had united, that he had called, that he had gone before, that he had saved, would be divided into two nations. Even more unthinkable, those two nations began to be at enmity with one another. They began to war against one another and become rivals rather than friends. Well, one of the stories of this rivalry, and, and really if you read second or the book of first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, it kind of chronicles all of this. And one of those kings, I was thinking about this passage this week, was a, it was a king named Asa. Now Asa did some good things, but Asa one day was found himself in a, in a hard situation. The nation of Israel, he was a king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the nation of Israel was starting to be aggressive toward the kingdom of Judah. So in order to protect Judah, he made a treaty with the king of Syria, another nation. And what he did to make this treaty was that he took gold from the house of the Lord and gave it to the king of Syria. It's a very severe offense. He took what was God's, as it were, and gave it to this other king. He trusted in the authority and power of the Syrian king more than he trusted in the authority and power of the living God. Well, this prophet comes to him and he says, what, what are you doing? This is from 2 Chronicles 16. He says, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you, meaning you'll, you'll not be able to defeat them. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hands. And so what is he saying here? He's saying, look, when, when you went against these other armies, the armies of the Ethiopians and the Libyans, you were able to have success because you trusted in God. But now there will be no peace. He says, now there'll be wars. This is a very famous passage. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward him, to those who are trusting in the Lord, to those whose desire is in the Lord, to those who know the Lord. That's who God gives strong support to. But Asa did not do this. And so the prophet says, you have done foolishly in making this treaty. For from now on, you will have wars. And of course, the people of Israel did have wars. Eventually, they were taken away by the Babylonians. Eventually, the Persians came. They were still under Persian rule. And here's where we are today. There's all these enemy nations. Now, you would think that the people of Israel would have read 
the book of First and Second Kings and read the book of Chronicles and learned from this and said, we're not going to do this. But where we pick up in the story today, it's an amazing part of the story. Nehemiah has completed the wall. They've had this incredible triumph. There was pressure from the outside. There was pressure from the inside. Yet still, God was with him. They've completed the wall. But there's this problem. And the problem is his nobles, his guys have made all of these treaties with enemy nations, with the enemies of God, with these other kings, particularly as we read here, Tobiah. I think this passage is really, really helpful for us in our day. And there's really two kind of big things that I want to think about with you today. And it's this idea of friendship with the world and friendship with God. What does it mean to be friends with the world and what does it mean to be friends with God? I'm kind of getting these titles from the book of James. James 4, there's this very famous passage where James basically says this, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So let's look at these ideas, friendship with the world. Again, amazing thing. Nehemiah has completed this wall. The people of Israel have worked together. Incredible organization. They've completed this wall in 52 days. And now all the nations around them, they're blown away by this. And they're like, okay, now we've got to contend with the Israelites. They're very fortified. They've got this wall. What are we going to do with them? Um, it should be a moment of celebration. But as I said, they've got this problem. All of these nobles, all of these Jewish officials are in a sense in bed with the Ammonites, literally in bed. Tobiah was married to Shechaniah's daughter. So Shechaniah was a Jewish noble. Now we know about Shechaniah from chapter three. In chapter three, Shechaniah's son, chapter three is the big chapter where it talks about the rebuilding of the wall. We see Shechaniah's son in chapter three helping on the wall rebuild. He actually took part of the east, uh, part of the wall and, and took on that responsibility. But here his daughter, this Jewish noble's daughter, this guy that was supposed to be for Nehemiah, his daughter is married to the Ammonite king that has been oppressing the people of Israel this whole time. But it gets worse. Tobiah's son is married to the daughter of Meshulam, who was a priest. So think about this. You have the government officials and you have the priests who are literally in bed with the enemy nation. And so what's happened is not just them, but other nobles have made these oaths with Tobiah. And you get it, right? What they're saying is, look, Shechaniah, I know you're in good with Tobiah, the whole wall thing's nice. Maybe it'll work. But if it doesn't, can you get me a note from Tobiah that if he takes us over, he won't kill me? If he takes us over, he won't take away my lands. If he takes us over, all the other people of Israel, I don't know about them, but, but me, I just want to keep my stuff. Can, can, can you work that out? And that's what had happened. They had this alliance both with Nehemiah as and with Tobiah, his arch enemy. And it gets kind of worse. They spoke of his good deeds in my presence, reported my words to him. 
This is something you might miss in the text, but you ever, is there ever somebody in your life and you kind of know this person's a scoundrel? Like, you know this person's like not a good guy and these people come around you and they'll like talk about him like, oh man, Tobias, such a good guy. You know, Tobias, this is what's happening. They're saying, oh, Tobias, he's so great. We're going to have a great neighbor in the Ammonites. We love Tobias. And, you know, the Nehemiah's just having to listen to this. You ever in that situation where somebody's talking about the guy and you're like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, that's what's happening. And then also they're double-crossing Nehemiah. They're taking his words and they're reporting them to Tobiah. So he's got these, these Tobiah loyalists among him. And, of course, Tobiah's writing these letters trying to make Nehemiah afraid. So what is this saying to us? As people, as the people of God in Christ, those of you who've been called to God in Christ, to represent him, to be a people of his possession, to be his witnesses, to be the ones who display his glory, you, those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, you, the people of God, what does this say to you? And I think what this presses to us is, are you like this? Have you made, a, have you made an oath with the world? Are you a friend with the world? Or are you a friend of God? Are your allegiances really with the Lord? Or are your allegiances with something else? Yeah, I think that's a powerful question. That's why this James passage is is so powerful. You know, most, most people want to be a friend with both, right? <laughs> most people want to say like, look, I, of course I want to be a friend with Nehemiah. I'm a Jewish person. I'm of Judah. Like I want Nehemiah to like me. Seems to be a very good leader. But just in case, I'm going to make this oath with Tobiah too. And I can totally identify with that, right? Yeah, I mean, I want to be in with the Lord, but I... Don't want to be like a freak in with the Lord. I want to be, hey, be respectable. I want to have all this, you know, I want the world to respect me too. Are you a friend of the Lord? Are you a friend of the world? Where's your allegiance? Where's your heart? Where's your identity? James in that passage that I cited earlier in James 4, here's how he starts when he's talking about this. He says, you adulterous people. You know what an adulterer is? An adulterer is someone who wants to be married. They want to have a wife or a husband and all the benefits that come with that. But they also want to have a girlfriend and all the benefits that come with that. That's what an adulterer is. And this is what James is saying here. That's who you, that's who you are. Are you friends? Are you trying to be friends with God and the world and, and what he says is, you can't do it. You'll either be, if you're a friend with the world, you will be God's enemy. If you've made the alliance with Tobiah, you're really no good to Nehemiah. You're really no good to what he's trying to do. How, how can you be used by Nehemiah if really you're kind of for Tobiah? James goes on, as I read before, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no neutrality with God. You're, you're either trusting in the Lord 
for your life and for your identity or you're trusting in something else. If you were here a few months ago, we, we, were, we were kind of chipping away at the Gospel of John. We're going to come back to John. But one of the things that John talks a lot about is this idea of life. And you really kind of need, we talked about this a few months ago, but if you weren't here, you, you kind of need the Greek translation to really get into what he's saying there. There's two Greek words for the word life. One is bios, okay, and one is zoe. So James, or John rather, 1.4 John famously says, in him was life. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. What he's not saying there is that in Jesus was bios. Bios means life like you're alive. It's where we get the word biology. So, you know, when someone says, for example, get a life, hey, get a life, they're not saying become living, right? become alive, right? That would be get a bios. They're not saying that. What they're saying is get a Zoe. And Zoe is this, this understanding of life that this is your life. This is your identity. This is who you are. What is your life, right? Who are you? When someone says, this is the life, what are they saying? They're saying, this is the Zoe. This is peace. This is wholeness. What is your life? What is your Zoe, right? That's the question. Where are you finding life, right? And so it's not that Christians aren't to engage in the world. It's not that we're not supposed to go out and engage in the world. Of course we are. It's not that Christians, this idea of friend with God and friend with the world is not Christians should be isolationists, right? That's not what this text is saying. That's not what James is arguing. What it's saying is the, 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 the Christian life, your, your life is in Christ. Your identity is with the Lord. Is Jesus your life? Is he your Zoe? Some of you, your relationship with Jesus, he's not really your life. He's just your afterlife, right? You know, you were a kid, you were in a church. I mean, I, when, I was in, <laughs> when, I, when I was in church a lot, I mean, every week they say, do you want to go to hell or do you want to go to heaven? If you want to not go to hell and go to heaven, pray this prayer. And so you know what pretty much everybody did every week? They prayed the prayer because who wants to go to hell? But what, what, what can be missed there is the actual gospel. <laughs> and so people just kind of said, I'll have this like a little Jesus thing that'll get me out of hell. Jesus is not really your life. He's just your afterlife. Some of you, Jesus is just part of your family tradition. You know what I'm doing in a couple weeks? I can't wait. I'm celebrating Thanksgiving with my family. It's part of our family tradition. We're gonna sit around, we're gonna watch football. It's gonna be amazing. That's something our family does. That's, here's what people say. That's how I was raised, you know. And a lot of people talk about Jesus like that. Yeah, I'm a Christian. That's how I was raised. But is Jesus your life? Or is he just another Thanksgiving meal type thing that you do? Because that's how you were raised. Some people go to Jesus and to get a sense of morality. You know, there's, I want to know what's right and wrong. The Bible seems to be wise. But is Jesus your life? And again, don't be wrong. There is forgiveness of sin in Christ. Being a part of a Christian family is a wonderful thing. There is morality in Christ. But is Jesus your, is he your Zoe? Is he your identity? Is he what's filling you up? 
Is he who you are? Are you, are you most loyal to him? Is that who you are? Is that the family that you are a part of? Or is he just kind of a part of something? Have you really made an oath with Tobiah? You see, if, if Jesus isn't your life, you will go into the world looking for a life. Again, Christians are designed, God has designed us to scatter into the world, to go into the world. But there's a big difference. I want you to hear this. There's a big difference between going into the world with a Zoe and going into the world to try to get a Zoe for a Zoe. If you go to work with a Zoe, knowing that you are a child of God in Christ, you'll be able to serve people You'll be able to sacrifice. You won't have to think about yourself all the time. You'll be disappointed, but you'll handle it when you don't get that promotion. You'll be able to celebrate other people. You'll be able to make, you'll be able to make boundaries and say, look, I can't work that much. These are priorities in my life. You'll have conviction at the workplace. You'll be free to talk about the Lord of the world. If you go to, if you go to work with a Zoe, God will use you in that place to advance his kingdom. But if you go to work for a Zoe, work will always win because it's your life. <laughs> it's what gives you purpose. It's what gives you money. It's what gives you a title. It's what gives you identity. And so you, you might do some spiritual things, but you'll only do it if work says it's okay. You, you, you certainly won't uh, celebrate people in the workplace because I need to get some Zoe here, not him. He doesn't work as hard as I do. You, you certainly won't see any missional purpose as to why you're there because you're not there, to, you're not there for those people. You're there for yourself. You need a Zoe. Same thing with relationships. Friendships, dating relationships, marriage. Let me just say this. We've got a lot of young folks that y'all are dating and maybe some young couples. If you go to dating and marriage with a Zoe, with a life, with an identity in Christ, as a daughter of God, as a son of God, you'll be an awesome boyfriend. You'll be a great girlfriend. You'll respect and honor the other person. You'll be a great spouse. You, you'll, you'll actually be able to sacrifice yourself for them. You'll actually be able to have you won't crush them with your expectations of them. You'll just be able to love them for who they are. But if you go into a relationship for a Zoe, you'll always be frustrated with that person. They'll never quite do what they, you want them to do. They'll never quite be who you want them to be. You won't be able to honor the Lord. You, you'll, you'll have fear in the relationship. You'll, 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 end up, you'll end up crossing boundaries that you know the Lord would not be pleased with. You know, whenever I talk to... Uh, a young Christian man that's having sex with his girlfriend outside of marriage, not God's design. He always says, well, yeah, but I love her. And I'll say, well, I know you love her, <laughs> but do you love the Lord? Are you going to her for a Zoe? Or do you have a Zoe in the Lord? Then you can be a friend of the Lord. You can honor the Lord. And guess what? that relationship will be blessed. If you go to money with a Zoe, God will use you to do so much. He will multiply. You'll, you'll be able to say, you'll be able to be a great steward of the resources that God has given you. You'll be able to, you'll be a part of blessing people. You'll have a generous heart. You realize that everything that you have comes from the Lord. 
and that you have been called by God to steward it. Yes, to take care of yourself and your family, but also to be a part of something bigger than that. But if you go to money for a Zoe, you'll never have enough. You'll never ask God, how should I steward this for your sake? Because the answer to that question, if you go to money for a Zoe is spend everything on yourself. Of course. What is your life? What is your Zoe? Where are you getting your identity? Who are you friends with, right? Who are you loyal to? Are you with the Lord? Is he your identity? Do you trust him? Even, and look, I get it. I get making alliances with Tobiah. We all do. Because Tobiah is a real threat. Tobiah is really out there. And Tobiah's promises are awesome. He's like, look, whatever, you're good. In fact, if I take over Israel, I'll give you more lands if you'll make an oath with me. All these, all these things in the world that we are tempted to find life in, they make the best promises. I get it. But where is your life? Are you a friend of God or are you a friend of the world? And here's the deal. I want you to hear this. God can really never use you. Nehemiah can't use someone who's got an oath to Tobiah. And God can really never use you. If, if, if you've got some identity, some Zoe, some life, some anchor outside of the Lord. Now look, if right now the Lord is stirring in your heart and you're saying, okay, look, this is real. You... you <laughs> I'm listening. I have been a friend of the world. I have good news for you. You know, I don't know exactly what Nehemiah would have said if the Jewish nobles would have come to him and said, look, Nehemiah, we were scared. And so we made an oath with Tobiah. We were wrong. We've actually taken a lot of what you said and we've given it over to Tobiah. We were wrong, but we've seen the hand of the Lord on you. Will you forgive us? I think he would have forgiven him. I don't know that to be sure, but I do know this. I do know what the Lord Jesus Christ would say to you if you came to him with that heart and said, I've been a friend of the world. Would you forgive me? He would say, the, the blood of my cross says, you are forgiven. And so right now, even right now in your heart, turn to the Lord, trust him, repent. Give up on those idols that will only ruin your soul. And be a friend of the Lord. So we've talked about friendship with the world. But secondly, I want to talk about what does it really mean to be a friend of God? What does it mean to be God's friend? Now, this, this passage actually gives us some great insight here, namely in these three faithful characters, Nehemiah, Hanani, and Hananiah. I mean, Nehemiah is just a very interesting guy to look at. I mean, God, I mean, he, he is so used by the Lord. He is so used by God. He, uh, he has faith in God in a, such a deep way. Um, in 52 days, he finishes this wall. And, and what does he do, right? I mean, what does he do? If, if I did something like this, I mean, let's be honest. You, you've done something that everyone said was impossible. I'll be honest. I'd, I'd be sticking my chest out a little bit, Okay. I'd be saying, hey, you guys owe me big time. But that's not what he does at all. The, the, the entire posture 
of Nehemiah's heart through this. I mean, look at Nehemiah 2.8. The good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah 2.12. God had put this task in my heart. Nehemiah 2.20, the God of heaven would make them prosper. Nehemiah 4.15, God had frustrated the plans of my enemies. Nehemiah 4.20, God would fight for them. After everything that Nehemiah does, you know what he says? He says, God, remember me. My reward is in the Lord. My reward is in the Lord. My identity is in the Lord. Consistent faithfulness. He doesn't seek the praise of men. He knows that he has a life in the Lord. But these other two guys, Hanani, you know, Hanani was kind of how this whole thing got started. I'd forgotten about this, but in chapter one, it was Hanani that went and found Nehemiah when he was serving in the house of Artaxerxes and said, look, the walls are in shambles. Jerusalem is in shambles. Come back. Let's do something about it. And I love this faithfulness. I want to be this kind of guy that sees a problem that's so big that everybody says it's impossible and says, look, I'll be, I'll be 40 in January, okay? I went to a 40th birthday. Andrew Duhon, my old buddy, we've been friends for a long time since we were like 18. It's kind of weird when I've, you know, I've been friends with him for 22 years. Um, and, you know, 40-year-old, settle, 40 is settling in on us, right? We're not as cool as we used to be. But so I don't know how much time I have left. Let's say 40 years. I mean, it might be this afternoon, but let's just say 40. Okay, what can I do in 40 years? What can the Lord use me to do in 40 years? That, that's, that, that's, how I want, that's how I want us to be as a church. What, what, can, what can I do to be faithful enough in my little life and then raise my kids and then maybe they could, the Lord can use them. So really, if I think about it, I got a lot of time. You know. What can I do? What can I get started? How can the Lord use me? Are we the kind of people that are willing to, in the Lord, say, look, I want to see the kingdom come and I'm going to, I'm going to take big steps. That's Hanani. Now it happens in 52 days, <laughs> but I love his faithfulness here. And then Han and I, I love what the Lord says about him, this guy. It doesn't talk about his talent. It doesn't talk about how awesome it was. It just says he was faithful and God-fearing. Faithful and God-fearing. If you build a wall and you don't protect the gates, it's pointless. Think about that. If you build a wall and you got a bad gate guy, it's pointless because people can just go through the gates. The most important position in the defense of the city is the gatekeeper. And the two guys that get this responsibility that God uses, to, as we're going to see next week, to fill this city, to bring flourishing. It says nothing of their ability. It says nothing of their talent. It says nothing of like how gifted they were. It just says they feared God. They, they were faithful. Man, you want the Lord to use Christ's covenant? I do. We don't need to be talented. We don't need to be special. We don't even really, we don't need a building. I'm, I'm happy to have one. It's going to be nice logistically, but we don't need it. What we do need is the fear of the Lord and faithfulness. You want the Lord to use your life? You're like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not like that. I'm like this. I can't do that. It doesn't matter. Fear the Lord. Be faithful. Those are the kind of people that the Lord uses. Those are the people that are friends with God that he uses in a big way. Now, you know what our problem is, though? You know what my problem is? Is that I'm not always faithful. <laughs> 
Sometimes I'm tempted to like call up Tobai and be like, hey man, remember me? I could use a deal. Sometimes my heart is shameful before the Lord. Sometimes my heart is, is hard toward the things of God. I want to be steadfast, but I know that I'm not. Remember uh, the passage that we looked at at the beginning with Asa? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I want the strong support of the Lord. The problem is my heart is not blameless toward him. But this is the amazing news. The, the wonderful news of the idea of adoption through the power of the gospel. In Christ, it's not our record. It's not our blamelessness. In Christ, what calls us, what makes us whole and right is the blamelessness of Christ. Now, even righteousness can be one of those things that we look to for identity that's worldly. Do you hear that? You can look to righteousness in a worldly way. I am not righteous. But what I know about me, Galatians 2.20, is that I have been crucified with Christ. It, it's, 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 it's no longer I who live. It's not my righteousness. It's not my unrighteousness. I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in Jesus trusting in his perfect righteousness, trusting in his full obedience, trusting in this identity that he has given me in him as a child of God. I can approach God the Father Almighty without fear, without uh, trepidation, without a sense of having to prove myself, not because I am so righteous, but because in Christ, I, I am the one who is blameless. And what does it say when God sees someone who's blameless? He gives strong support to him. Do you, do you know that? Do you know that? Are you in Christ? Do you, do you know who you are as a child of God? You know, this week, some of y'all know the Dees family. We've had a crazy 2021. We've been out of our house. A tree fell on our house. This week, we moved back in. So excited. So relieved. Great to be back in the house. And, you know, the house is looking good. Just all the walls are fresh. You know, it's a nice, nice thing. And so Rainer, I think we have a picture. Rainer decided to decorate his room. <laughs> and I can't hate him. Because if you'll notice, it's an AU and a football. <laughs> I mean, there was like three of these in other places in the room. Okay, so this is not his only contribution. <laughs> and... um. You know, Rainer knew that he shouldn't do that. And I, I, came, I went up to the room and I said, who did this? And Rainer goes, I didn't do it. <laughs> and his handwriting gave him away. We had a handwriting specialist named Mom that came in and was like, I think I know who did this. And so, of course, Rainer, you know, got in trouble. But never, never in that moment did the thought cross Rainer's mind? I'm no longer a part of the Dees family. <laughs> Never in that moment did Rainer think like, I'm out now, I've messed up the paint, I'm done. No, 
He needed to repent. He needed to be reconciled. But he's my child. He knows I love him. He knows I'm his father. He knows that he's covered. He's always a part of the family. That's the amazing gift of the gospel. Is that in Jesus, you've been invited in. You have a way in. You're adopted. The, the price of your adoption has been fully paid. You're a daughter. You're a son. And so, yeah, we bump along. I'm not, I'm not always going to be blameless, but the price of my adoption's been paid. And it was paid by one who always is blameless and who is willing to take on my blame and my fault and call me in. Are you a friend with the world? Can the world give you something like that? Is that the way the world treats you? Are you a friend with the Lord? Is your faith in the world, is, can the world give you anything like that? Are you a friend with the Lord? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that in Christ we have the hope of adoption as sons, as daughters. Father, even when we are tempted to befriend things that we should not and make oaths in places that we know are wrong, Lord, through repentance and faith, reconciliation and restoration in the family, these doors are wide open to us. Lord, I pray today for Christ's covenant that, that we would be the people that live there, that live in a place of repentance and faith, that live there. Father, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to just find deep and wide life, Zoe, in him. May this be true of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.